the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Good afternoon. I'm not so great. Things are not so fine. I'm hurting. Not an answer that most of us are programmed to give. Not only are we resident, resident rather, to um, be that honest and candid with each other, but even when it comes to our relationship with God, more often than not, we just fake fine. My guest tonight suggests that it's time to quit that, that we should... Uh, no more engage in faking fine. In fact, no more faking fine is the title of her new book, newly released by Zondervan. We're pleased to have Esther Fleece join us on the program. And uh, Esther, I, I, I think I can say for the moment with complete honesty, uh, good morning. I am fine. How are you? <laughs> I'm so glad to hear that, Craig. You know what? I'm doing well today as well, as well. And I appreciate you having me on your program. Great to have you with us. And wouldn't it be refreshing, not only refreshing, but perhaps life-changing if we could be a little bit better in touch with the realities of life and the times when we have to honestly say, you know what, I'm not so fine. In fact, I'm really hurting today, and I'm in a lot of pain. Not only do we do a good job oftentimes trying to hide that from very God himself, but we, generally speaking, have become masters at this when it comes to faking fine in front of others. Why so? You know, I think that, um, gosh, social media sure doesn't help nowadays. You know, you kind of put your best foot forward, and that's even online. So there's just, you have to be Pinterest perfect, and, um, you know, it depends on how many likes you have for how your day is going. And I don't know how this has happened, but I, I feel that we are just putting our best foot forward, and we are forgetting that there is a, a beauty um, in transparency and that people connect to us when they hear our brokenness, that it's actually an invitation for friendship. When boasting and being fine really shuts down relationships from happening. And of course, the irony is not only does it shut down our interpersonal relationships to the greatest degree on the horizontal plane and the capacity to be able to, what else scripture exhorts us, to bear ye one another's burdens. In fact, it goes further than that. It says, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Not only do we violate that, but also this matter of faking fine also tends to impact our relationship with God pretty significantly too, doesn't it? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I thought when people just wanted my best foot, then certainly God probably wants that too. He, he wants to hear about what I'm thankful for. He wants me to rejoice always. He wants me to never be anxious. And I was missing all of the invitations in Scripture to come. You know, he says, come if you're weary. Come if you're burdened. I will give you rest. There's all these invitations throughout Scripture that we, he knows we are going to be weary. He knows that we are going to be in pain, that we are going to be frustrated and I feel that we're at the end of our rope sometimes, and he invites us to come. He never silences a lamenting prayer. And sadly, that sort of turning away from the ability to pray the lamenting prayer, to to pull the mask down, so to speak, and be um, who we are in our pain and with our burdens, not only in front of each other, but in front of God, is not just something that we make up on our own, but in fact, in many cases, it's something that's sort of a trained response. You, you talk about it inside of your new book, No More 
faking find that as a young girl at the age of 10, you were um, not only readily encouraged to fake fine, but you were told upright and in a stern voice by no less authority than a family court judge to, well, his term wasn't fake fine. His term was suck it up. But at the end Mm. of the day, it had the same result, didn't it? Absolutely. You know, I think a lot of us, when we think back to um, childhood years, we can think of how we were taught to deal with grief and pain and heartache. And some of us might have been taught um, good tools, but many of us were told to suck it up. Or maybe we've even heard things like, boys don't cry, or girls are too emotional. And um, unfortunately, we've um, put prescriptions on how to deal with grief that are not how God describes to deal with grief. Uh, You know, Jesus was described as a man of sorrows, and Jesus himself led us into his weeping. Uh, He didn't suck it up. He didn't pray it away. So um, I was. I was told by a courtroom judge. I was testifying in a a felony case, actually, that involved my biological parents. And uh, my father's lawyer pulled out my diary and began to read my diary in front of the whole courtroom. I was just mortified. I felt so ashamed. I didn't know what to do. I was overcome with grief. And in that moment, the judge told me to suck it up. And he said I needed to keep going. And uh, truth be told, I lived that way for more than 20 years. And um, because of God's great love, um, he allowed more afflictions, more suffering, more pain throughout my life to where sucking it up no longer worked. I became very weary, and I thought there has to be a new way. There has to be a new way to pray there has to be something that I can do with this grief that's inside of me. And sucking it up no longer worked. During that time, though, that it was not only a mandate, um, but a coping mechanism in a, in a sense. And again, it's not just the culpability of that judge with that very inappropriate directive, but quite frankly, a lot of what we are mandated to do throughout society. Oh, nobody likes to see a frown face. Turn that frown right side up. You know, we hear all of those platitudes. And at the end of the day, it, it, it really robs us of the ability to be able to be vulnerable enough, particularly before God, to, to to not only express where we're at and how we're feeling, but most importantly, to receive any kind of healing. That, that, that sense of just kind of pretending our way through life really robs us of the ability, robs us of the ability to define wholesomeness, doesn't it? Oh, it absolutely does. And, you know, I didn't want to bother God with my cries, especially, you know, I, I was abandoned. I didn't have a mother and father that were involved that wanted to hear about my bad day at school. Uh, so I just didn't want to bother God. And then I would read Scripture, and I'd hear about, you know, these stiff-necked people and these people that were ungrateful, and I just never wanted to be that before God. But I didn't understand at the time that there's a difference between a lamenter and a complainer. Mm. A lamenter takes their emotion, takes their bad day, takes their grief and their disappointment, and goes to God in a form of prayer and says, God, this is too much. I can't handle this. I need you. Where are you? Why is this happening? Those are authentic prayers that God wants to meet somebody. He wants to offer comfort to them. He wants to give them his peace. A complainer is vastly different. A complainer grumbles against God. A complainer complains to God about, you know, about God to other people. Like, I don't like God's timing, and he's this and he's that. So there's a big difference between a lamenter and a complainer. And I want to say to your listeners that God does want our laments. He wants to hear them. Yeah, certainly um, he's given us examples in Scripture of how that process looks. I think of people like Job, who had a little bit of complainer in him, but there was also a lot of lamenting that went on there. And, and, and I guess we also have to be cautious here. 
and reminding people that we sometimes confuse, we get this this um, misconception about Christianity, that somehow uh, in Christianity there's a guarantee that life will be happy and pain-free and we're going to get a get out of a jail or get out of suffering card. But in fact, it, it was, Scripture doesn't tell us, us that anywhere, does it? It doesn't. It actually tells us that um, in this world we will have many troubles. Um, and it says that the world is going to hate us. And it's not to, um, you know, read those things, and they're not to be dismissed, and they're not to be despaired either. We're not to be in despair, but we are to be prepared when the suffering comes, when the trials come. And as the suffering continued in my life, I I just was like, what am I doing wrong in my faith? Am I not praying enough? Am I not reading the Scripture enough? And I realized I was placing a wrong theology, almost a karma theology on God. And that God was kind enough to warn me that trials and tribulations were going to come and that I needed to endure. I needed to be steadfast. And so I would just love to see believers, instead of blaming God when trials come, shifting our blame and turning into lament, and to authentically pray, God, this hurts that this is happening. I am having a hard time dealing with cancer. Please heal me. I mean, that is an authentic prayer. But I think God wants to be stop. He, he wants us to stop gossiping about Him and stop blaming Him for the evils of the world. He laments evil too. He grieves Himself. The Holy Spirit grieves. All of creation is groaning. And so um, I just think it's a language that God Himself speaks. So of course He doesn't despise it. How kind that He would teach us how to pray. Well, uh, moreover, to be able to experience the totality of God's grace in the midst of our brokenness. Mm by being yeah. able to be candid that way with others and with God is something that I think as we're, as we're you know, uh, pretending and putting on the happy face, there's another song we could have used, Jarrell. Uh, we, we, we miss out on the opportunity to experience the totality of God's grace in that brokenness. I, I was sharing with a colleague today, uh, I recall a year ago, just this past October, I was diagnosed with cancer. And a friend asked me about the experience. Well, gee, when you when you got the word from the doctors that you've been diagnosed with cancer, and my mother had just been buried on a, on a the end of a fourteen year battle with ovarian cancer one month prior to my diagnosis. Well, that's a wake up call. And uh, so this friend asked me, "Well, gee, what what did you say to the doctor? What did you what did you think? What did you say to God? Why me?" I said, you know, I, I pondered that question for a moment, and then the more I thought about it, I thought, you know, an even more valid question, instead of shaking my fist towards heaven and saying, why me, God, was, well, why not me? If mm. Scripture says to us that the rain falls on the just and the unjust, why not me? Do we have a sense in our life that somebody else is deserving of the bad stuff and we're only deserving of the good stuff? Or conversely so, those that get stuck in that permanent pity party that says, gee, there must be something really wrong about me, something really defective about me, in that I've got all of these terrible things visited upon me, and so therefore they kind of remain stuck in that mode and they, they kind of wear their pain as a badge of honor and never get a chance to dig down deep into what's going on or what God wants us to learn from that experience or, uh, or uh, just as importantly, robs us of the ability to experience the totality of God's grace in that pain, in that brokenness. Yes. Oh, Craig, it's just convicting for me to hear you even say that, because that is a, a big load to carry, you know? But what a beautiful perspective, and, and truly that's something that happens to us when we lament to God, when we do cry out to Him, and we do ask why. He shifts our perspective. 
he does something that's called a new song in the Psalms. And when, when we are in a time of lament or a time of despair and we bring that to God, it says that he gives us a new song and a hymn of praise. And it's a new song that we could not have previously sung if we didn't go through the despair, if we didn't go through the lament. So when we suck it up and when we fake fine, we're missing out on these mysteries of God and this ability to praise him and thank him for his sovereignty and his goodness, even in the midst of cancer. And so it sounds like what you did is taking your lament and God turned it into praise. And that's exactly what this book about is about. It's not staying in your lament forever. <laughs> It's not even celebrating the lament. It's saying there's a purpose for my pain. God is not going to waste it. And it's my story, but it's his glory. And it's asking God, please give me a new song again. Help me to sing. Remind me of your faithfulness, because I believe I will see your goodness in the land of the living. And it's not giving up hope until we do. A brief pause. We're going to come back to more of our dialogue today. We're visiting with Esther Fleece. The book is called No More Faking Fine. Love that title. Newly published, by the way, by our friends at Zondervan. You'll find it at bookstores throughout the Bay Area. You can also order the book online through Esther's website at estherfleece.com. We'll take a brief time out. Back to more of our conversation right after an update on traffic. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Put on a happy face. We do a lot of that. At the end of the day, though, uh, that faking fine ends up being something that I think we all pay a great penalty for. And that isn't to say that every time you have a moment of difficulty in your life, you want to write a book about it and, uh, and get out and tell everybody about, oh, let me tell you about the latest tragedy. No, but sadly, a lot of people hide behind the faking of fine or the putting on of the happy face, and as a result, never get a chance to experience God's grace in brokenness. We not only try to hide our pain from others, but we ultimately try to hide our pain from God, and that becomes a huge barrier to our relationship with others and ultimately with Him. The new book today by Esther Fleece, No More Faking Fine. And Esther, give us some perspective for the benefit of listeners. Um, how is it that you essentially, by reading the book, seem like you spent your, your early formative years growing up in family court. What happened? You know, my um, biological parents went through a really uh, rough divorce. My father suffered from a severe mental illness, and he was uh, physically, you know, hurting my mother. And so there's a lot of hardship just growing up in a home like that, but nobody ever really processed things with me, and I was just in and out of court as a witness um, because my father wanted to see me. Um, just It was very... Um, an unsteady past and traumatic, and um, eventually he ended up leaving the family, spent time in and out of jail, and my, my mother ended up leaving as well when I hit the age of 13. I think she had just been so hurt, uh, so abused, and just she didn't have much to give. And so I really found myself orphaned around the age of 13, didn't go into the foster care system, surprisingly enough. At the time, there was just wonderful families in my community and the public school I went to, as well as uh, the church I was involved in. And these families said, she can stay with us. And um, I lived really Psalm 68, which says God places the lonely in families. And uh, these families stepped up and really uh, reparented me and showed me the love of God. And through their love, I was able to believe that God was not only a good father, but had um, wonderful characteristics like a good mother, like his compassion and nurturing um, nature. So, um, yeah, I, I am a former orphan, I like to say, um, that's now no longer sucking it up. I, I do go into details of, of my past in the book, 
Um, but trying to not make that the, the focus, trying to help the reader identify their own pain points and maybe the things that they've stuffed for 20 or 30 years themselves. And, of course, sometimes in that suffering, we kind of get stuck. Um, that pain, ironically, while it's not welcome, um, is familiar. And because it's familiar, sometimes it feels more comfortable. Um, talk to us about how you moved from faking fine to learning the power of a biblical concept that's not spoken much of, that's not preached about much, but but in fact can be a very effective tool in, in breaking the cycle, and that is learning what it means to lament. Tell me about that. Oh, well, I, I'm glad you asked the question, and I know some of your listeners are going to be uncomfortable with the answer because, you know, I, I was studying this language of lament, and I was learning how to pray was reading the Psalms, and I was discovering that not only was it a great prayer manual, but that the Psalms would have been sung. And so we could even sing our grief and sing our questions to God. And so just as God was teaching me this new language, and this is over the course of years, I, I couldn't get away from the fact that there was also communal lament in Scripture, that um, there is a significant portion of our healing that is done in the context of community. Uh, God himself is a relational God, and he desires for us to not live in isolation, but in community. So it was really when I started opening up um, these laments with safe community. Now, of course, it's not, I'm not saying I tweeted everything. I just went to trusted Christians and uh, in a safe context to let them know what I was struggling with and what I was afraid of and where I felt God had let me down that they were able to help me and help me to see where I had some false beliefs. You know, when the courtroom judge told me to suck it up, I actually made a vow, Craig. I said, I'm never going to write again because my words were used against me as a 10-year-old girl in court. And so wouldn't it be of God that as he does this healing process in me, he calls me to write a book and to help other people get unstuck from the false vows that they're living in as well. So there are two types of laments in Scripture. There's individual laments and there's community laments. And I think both are critical for us to have a healthy spirituality. We certainly, um, as we go through the book of Psalms, see so many cases where David uh, expresses his sense of lament. And there can be a certain healing to this that that people perhaps um, miss. They don't, and, and maybe just a, a matter of definition here. When we talk about what lamenting is, this is not gee, I lament the fact that uh, I misdated dating the the prettiest girl at the prom in high school. Uh, it, it's something deeper than that, and it also, I think, expresses not just a feeling but an acknowledgement of a sense of, of loss where for many of us that have gone through difficult experiences in life, and I've, I, as a kid, had my uh, brush with family court as well, uh, nothing severely as, as what you face, but I, I had a point in my life when I had to finally kind of um, pull up my bootstraps and look seriously in the mirror and say, you know what, I got robbed of a lot of what should have been a normative childhood because of difficulties between my parents, no fault of my own. And hey, just like any time you, you, you experience loss, part of the healing process is going through grief. And for me, I had short-circuited that. I moved right past the grief and tried to kind of bury that and did so for many, many years. And I think it was after I finally came to terms with the fact that there was a loss that I needed to acknowledge and grieve over that I was able to find a sense of, of personal victory and I think be able to get into a better place in my relationship with God. Was that largely the same experience that you had? And, and give us a sense for the benefit of listeners, when we talk about lamenting, what exactly do you mean by that? 
You know, lament is, uh, and it's an expression of grief, like you said. It's a deep cry that's in your heart. It's almost the prayers that you don't want to pray out loud in church. Mm. It's almost a thing going on that you don't want others to know, like your your agony or your disappointment or your sadness. And it's uh, bringing it to God. A lament is an expression of that grief. But in this book, I'm saying it's, a, it's an expression of grief that God meets you in. Because I just believe that all throughout Scripture— Again, God is deeply attracted to us in our brokenness. He does not turn away or silence a lamenting prayer. So a lament is that expression of grief that God meets you. And I, I appreciate your testimony. Mine is so similar. And I used to think, gosh, retraining my mind means never thinking again of the abuse I experienced. I thought, you know, okay, God, give me a new mind and a clean heart. And I just thought that the blood of Christ should have given me amnesia or something. <laughs> but... Um, Really, there was healing that took place when I was able to lament to God, and then God met me in that brokenness. And it wasn't anything that somebody could have put a Band-Aid on. It was a, a deep form of a relational intimacy that I have with God. For example, when I lamented the loss of my biological parents, and this is over the course of years, just really struggling with this, it was when God led me to the verse in Psalm 68 that says, He places the lonely in families. And that became my new song. I was able to not give thanks for what I went through, but I was able to have a new song. Thank you, God, that you provided for me by giving me good families when mine was taken. But we cannot fully forgive unless we first lament. And I don't think we can be fully healed unless we deal with our grief as well. Let's pause. We're going to come back to more of our conversation, some closing remarks with Esther Fleece. The new book is called No More Faking Fine, again, newly published by Zondervan. You can get it at bookstores throughout the Bay Area, Amazon.com, or order it directly through Esther's website, EstherFleece.com. We'll take a brief time out, back with more right after an update on traffic. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Of course, the topic of our discussion tonight is to uh, step away from a bit of that uh, um, slide of, of emotional hand, so to speak, and be a little bit more real. And in doing so, be able to not only face the pain that you're dealing with through life's difficult experiences, but ultimately to be able to find healing and restoration in and through that sense of pain or that grieving and lamenting. And as we continue our conversation tonight with best-selling author Esther Fleece, Esther, I wonder if maybe one of the big challenges here is people just to have a fear of vulnerability. Uh, they've gone through so much pain, so much loss, that to even confront it, talk about it, to even pray about it before God sometimes becomes a huge challenge because they just don't want to have to relive it. Yeah, and I, I can't blame those people. I mean, I, I lived that way um, for most of my life. I, I mean, I wrote the book, I think, because I need the book. I need to be reminded that uh, when I'm weak, there is this mystery in my faith that God and His strength not only comes near to me, but His glory is displayed. That when I admit my weaknesses, it, it allows God to be strong for me. And so it isn't always the easy thing. It's, it's not our default. It's not our natural tendency. But, but I do think it is a way that we can display God to the world. You know, we are the only people in the world that can pray to a God who bottles our tears when we cry. No other God offers that. And so when we display our lament and when we display vulnerability and how God is meeting us in that, it's actually a great tool 
for our unsaved or unchurched neighbor to see that God actually does care about us when life is not going our way. And to be able to sort of pull out of that sense of emotional isolation and uh, be able to not only own the pain, uh, but then in and through it, be able to slowly go through the grieving process that allows us to then eventually surrender that pain. And I guess that's also an important uh, point here in your book, uh, that this, this lamenting that you talk about, it's not a question of living in lament, it's just a season, right? Yeah, I, I think it is a season. I think it's a, a prayer language. But I, I think what we need to realize is that our life here on earth is never going to be uh, absent of lament. You know, I kept thinking, you know, as long as I can get through this trial, then I'm going to be happy again. Instead of just recognizing that lament on this side is, is going to be a part of my vocabulary. You know, we're told in Scripture that all of creation groans. We're told that the Holy Spirit can be grieved. We are led into Jesus' grief, and God himself expresses emotion like anger and sadness. And so why would I think that I would be so spiritual to never express my emotion that's painful on this side of heaven? I mean, it's just going to happen. So I, I want the listeners to just be better prepared when, when the trials come, when those seasons come, that they will not last forever, but there will be seasons of lament, I think, as long as we're here on earth. And, and certainly Scripture bears that out. I mean, we're reminded that the rain falls on the just and the unjust. Christianity, at the end of the day, is no guarantee of pain-free life, nor do we get some sort of a get-out-of-jail card or a free pass from hurt and suffering. But what we do get is a loving, tender, merciful God who yeah. cries with our tears, who likewise has suffered pain and rejection and been buffeted and gone through all of the scope, the entire breadth and depth of human emotion uh, in the person of Jesus Christ and uh, not only feels our pain, but is there ultimately to heal our pain. But of course, we need to own that pain in order for all of that to happen. I, I guess there's also an important word of warning here for listeners and readers of your book, uh, and that is to understand that lamenting doesn't necessarily equate being stuck in one's faith, does it? I mean, I guess people can get there where all they do is lament. So we move from faking fine to uh, uh, owning the pain so much that we're never willing to, to step away from it. So we have to be careful there, too, don't we? Well, you know, I, I, I appreciate that because I, I felt very convicted as I was writing the book to help people get unstuck. I think that sometimes, yeah, we can have a tendency to either stuff it and ignore our pain or spend too much time in it. Uh, I, I think we need to recognize there's not a formula, an A plus B equals C for our grief. And our grief is going to look different than our neighbor's grief. But the goal is to not stay in that forever. I, and I think that that's where the new song comes. So I think as, as your listeners read the book, I hope that they can find themselves in one of the chapters, whether they can relate to Job, whether they can relate to Jeremiah, whether it's they can relate to Mordecai and Esther, but there are so many different examples of people who have gone before us who lamented, and God pulled them out of it. Lament is not your final destination, but it will happen here. So yeah, I, I do hope that the readers walk away with a sense of hope that they can have a new song, they can have renewed joy, they can have thankfulness, they can have peace in their heart, even if their circumstances do not change. They don't have to stay in a lament forever. Were you able, in and through this discovery of what it means to lament from a scriptural standpoint, 
eventually move from, and again, I think you know, there's some some people that get stuck in, in anger and in rage. Uh, it, it becomes an emotion that's familiar and that becomes comfortable. It's a great way to kind of let off some steam, although I don't think there's a lot of spiritual benefit to it at the end of the day. Were you able to, to move beyond that sense of maybe even rage at times, if you had any, and and in doing so, once having lamented, once having owned the grieving process, so to speak, then eventually see that allowing you to push forward into an authentic relationship with God? Absolutely. And and not only an authentic, uh, deeper, more intimate relationship with God, but with those around me. And if I could just uh, tell you this story, I, I got married a month ago, and it was just Honestly, it was one of the first times I had felt the love of God so deep. Um, I never thought I would be married. I never thought I could open my heart up again after I was so wounded as a child. And, you know, when I was just experiencing this beautiful emotion of love on my honeymoon, and my husband and I found out that my biological father passed away. And, you know, it was, I grieved. It was a shock. I couldn't believe it. I was just so happy, and in one phone call, how your life can change. But I tell you what, Craig, I lamented. I took my tears to God. I was sad for the life that our family lived. I was sad for the life my dad lived, but I was still able to thank God in the midst of it, and I was able to recognize that He had given me a husband to grieve with. And even if your listeners don't have a husband, you know, they have somebody that does care about them, that will walk with them uh, when life is hard. And I didn't stay in my lament like I was used to. I was used to staying in it for a year or two. And I was able to grieve and lament honestly before God. And I was I was okay. I made it out. So I do think, again, that lamenting circumstances are going to come in and out of our life. And hopefully we just get a, a stronger assurance that God is the faithful one to bring us through in difficult trials. And understanding that not lamenting. Not owning the pain and the grief, not acknowledging the fact that you've suffered through a loss, whatever it might be. It could be the loss of a childhood, as we've been discussing today, the loss of a parent, uh, missed relational opportunities that we know we blew and and we know we're never going to recapture. It could be an estranged son or daughter, whatever the case might be. Um, It's a matter of, of owning that, grieving, going through the process, lamenting as Esther is so wonderfully articulated here today, and then to move beyond it so that we don't stay in it. In fact, Esther has launched a national campaign that ties in ideally with the book, No More Faking Fine. It's called Ending the Pretending. And uh, you'll get a chance, by the way, if you go to her website, estherfleece.com, to hear some other stories of lamenting and pretending and then owning it and eventually finding freedom um, from the likes of uh, Jim Daly, Focus on the Family, uh, Brett Kern from the NFL, and many others. And you can get more information about that on Esther's website at estherfleece.com. That's estherfleece.com. The new book, No More Faking Fine, Ending the Pretending. The book, by the way, published by Zondervan. You'll get it at bookstores throughout the Bay Area, Amazon.com, and again also through Esther's website at estherfleece.com. Esther, thanks so much for the time and sharing today. And uh, I I really trust that a lot of what you've shared from your own uh, pain and brokenness and and experience has been um, not only eye-opening, but also spiritually revealing uh, to our listeners today so that they can move beyond the faking and move into healing and wholeness. 
And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. It's fairly common. Folks go out and because it's their old alma mater or they're aware of uh, maybe a school that's gotten some good rankings somewhere, somehow, that they think uh, they're doing the right thing or because it has a tuition that begins at, you know, $21,000 per week, that it must be the right place to send their kids because, you know, the more we spend for a car, we typically get a better quality car, better quality house. Is that necessarily true, though, when it comes to a better quality education? Well, my guest in this segment of the program might uh, beg to differ with that. In fact, we're going to talk about how to choose the right college. There is a website, by the way, that you need to know, jot down and uh, bookmark, called collegeguide.org. that gives you insights on to some of the best and worst colleges of the U.S., the reasons why, and most importantly, it's not always what you think they ought to be. Now, if you're someone that typically picks up a copy of U.S. News and World Report, a magazine to which I subscribed for many years, and you think that that's the single place to get information, let me dispel that myth right now. John Zimrick joins us on the program. And, John, talk to us a bit about the latest report now, a look at choosing the right college that gives some insights that parents, in fact, uh, might run kind of contrary to what they've otherwise heretofore believed about certain schools. Yes, our emphasis is on showing up what's really going on at these colleges. We're an organization, Intercollegiate Studies Institute, that's existed since 1953. It was founded by William F. Buckley um, immediately after he wrote his famous book, God and Man at Yale, where uh, he was disturbed by just how anti-American and anti-God he found his experience at Yale University, which he would have expected to be a kind of bastion of, of Christianity and patriotism, given that it was one of the founding colleges of the United States. But he was quite surprised at what he found. So the Intercollegiate Studies Institute was founded as a kind of support group for students of religious faith, of patriotic values, uh, committed to market economy and to traditional values. And it connects students and faculty across the country as committed to those things. We use our network of contacts associated with all these schools to tell us what's really going on on the campuses. And we use that to produce our biannual 1,000-page report on the leading 130 colleges in the country. Some of the information that you're presenting really, as we say, kind of runs contrary to to popular belief. Uh, a lot of the, the, the popular rankings, I, I would suspect, are based on the name, the prestige, the amount of money that they're charging. But that's not always indicative of the quality of instruction, is it? No, not at all. In fact, uh, sometimes it's almost the, the inverse of that. You'll find that at the most prestigious and expensive schools, they're paying the professors primarily to do research and to come up with elaborate and sometimes esoteric academic studies that only two or three hundred people in the whole world will ever read. Now, that's fine in the natural sciences or in engineering, but in literature, really, do we need the 400th book in the last two years on Shakespeare? Or even worse, do we need books on really esoteric subjects such as, like, lesbian influence on graphic novels? Um, well, you'll find that the best professors at these schools often spend most of their time on research while teaching is relegated to graduate teaching assistants, you know, people working on their Ph.D. All right. That said, one of the, the things that you outline inside of this survey, and again, a lot of the information available on the web at collegeguide.org, is this idea that some of the best-known so-called prestigious schools turn out to be train wrecks. What do you mean by that? By train wreck, we mean a place that has a lot of potential, that has many millions of dollars in resources. 
that is squandering them on political activism or on esoteric subjects or on uh, building elaborate, comfortable student lounges so that the students can, can treat the school like, like a, a resort. Um, and, and several schools we identified, uh, Wesleyan University in Connecticut, which you know might sound like a nice Methodist school, but in fact is entirely secular and one of the most anti-Christian and, and, and I have to say um, licentious colleges I've ever heard of. Not only are the dormitories co-ed or the, and the bathrooms co-ed, even the dorm rooms are co-ed. Every dorm room can potentially be co-ed, so couples can hook up on the college's dime in the college's dormitory. And the school, uh, the school is a gay lesbian student center that has a lending library of, of really sadistic pornography. It, it's just staggering what goes on at a school named for a man like John Wesley, and that parents are paying forty thousand dollars a year so that their kids can be exposed to it. Why does a lot of this information tend to elude some of the more traditional resources? And I don't want to pick on U.S. News and World Report, but why does some of this backstory about, uh, you know, not just the, the, the rankings in terms of the caliber of education, but the, the intellectual atmosphere, the quality of instruction, student life, the, the, what goes on behind the scenes, why does so much of this tend to sort of elude some of the perhaps better-known ranking systems? Well, because they don't have an overt philosophy of education. They're just looking at the numbers. They're trying to be value neutral. And in that way, they're accepting the kind of relativistic philosophy that underlies so much of education. We have an overt educational philosophy. It is the traditional liberal arts mission that helped create the American college system that uh, John Henry Newman talked about in the idea of a university, um, that the Jesuits used in forming their colleges, that the Protestant reformers used in forming Yale and Harvard and Princeton. We're willing to say, yes, we choose one set of values over another. This set of values seems to us more in consonance with the Western tradition. So we are going to choose schools that do a better job of reflecting that tradition. All right, with all that said, you're ranking everything from the intellectual atmosphere, quality of the instruction. Uh, do, you, do you take into consideration the political bent of the school as well? We do. We, we, we look for schools where there is not a uniform, monolithic, typically liberal or feminist or multicultural atmosphere that would make conservative or Christian students feel unwelcome. Um, it's a really widespread problem that colleges are just not wholesome places where you can feel free to express your ideas and, and the values you live by. And, and in the universities are supposed to be a place of free exchange, but they've increasingly become places of indoctrination. So we highlight schools where they aren't necessarily conservative or Christian, but they are open. They, they have academic freedom. Students can feel free to express their views without fear of being graded down or expelled or prosecuted by the school for, for, for saying what they believe. And that's, a, that's not as universal as you would hope, that kind of academic freedom. Academic freedom tends to cut just one way at most colleges. It cuts the left. There's also another uh, kind of a monster lurking in the background here in the room that a lot of folks tend to kind of ignore, and that is the notion that uh, quite often we, we fail to count the real cost. We look at sort of, okay, this is what the tuition is going to be. You also take a look at uh, the average expense that students will have in terms of student loans and the ongoing indebtedness too, don't you? I think that, yes, the most important number to look at, because, you know, a lot of schools have high tuition and a lot of financial aid, and they cancel out. 
the thing to look at is the average student loan debt of a recent graduate. That tells you that's where the rubber hits the road. The average American student graduates with a debt of $25,000. That's more than most of them will earn upon graduation. That's such a weight to be carrying. That's, such a, that's the kind of thing that slows down people's attempts to form families or to get married. It certainly prevents them from owning homes and, and starting a nest egg. So that's the kind of challenge we'd rather see people not have to face as recent college graduates. Folks want to get more information. Uh, we've mentioned about the website, collegeguide.org. Right, and the book we published, Choosing the Right College, which is available from Amazon.com and at major bookstores. Excellent. Again, Choosing the Right College, an invaluable resource, and again through Amazon.com, the usual suspects as well. Details, too, on the web at collegeguide.org. And our thanks to John Zamrick for being with us on this edition of Lifeline. Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of KFAX. Copyright Salem Media Group, all rights reserved. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.